You are tuned to the Nachum Siegel Network on jmandtheam.org and nachumsiegel.com. Stay tuned for JM Sunday with Matis Weingast.
Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another great edition of JM Sunday, right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Matas Weingast. It's the 5th of November in the year 2017, the 16th day in the month of Cheshvan, 5778. And we are here with you, and we are, uh, we are um, on the air with you, and uh, glad you could join us this morning. Uh, it is uh, Eastern Standard Time now, so uh, we are uh, broadcasting in Eastern Standard Time, and we're glad that uh, that you could be here with us. Uh, it is 55 degrees outside of our studio and cloudy. 63 degrees is the expected high today with rain in the morning, tapering off in the afternoon, and a low of 60 degrees tonight and uh, remaining cloudy in Jerusalem. It's 68 degrees and cloudy heading down to 52 degrees in Sanhedrin. Daf Yomi, very exciting week. Daf Kufyud Gimel, 112 today. And uh, tomorrow is the uh, is the final day of uh, Sanhedrin in the cycle, the 113th Daf. And on Tuesday, uh, we start Mesach uh, Makos. And uh, it's a great uh, a great thing. Just to hop on board. Mesach Makos, a relatively short... Uh, tractate and you could complete it within the next 30 days uh, as a matter of fact there are 23 days of Masechus Makos so uh, you can uh, enjoy that it really is enjoyable to to go through this to learn a lot uh, Sanhedrin is a very interesting Masechta and uh, yeah so start start on Tuesday uh, let's see what's doing today well we are a part of the 24-plus hours of the music of Rabbi Shlomo Kabach, uh, honoring his 23rd yard site, which happened uh, today, 23 years ago, the 16th of Cheshvan. And we still remember that day. Uh, and uh, this is the annual NSN Kabach yard site commemoration. It began after Shabbos. Avrami had amazing selections on his show last night the stream the network continued all night long through this morning we're going to be playing all Shlomo Kabach music and then it'll continue on the network all day long today also uh, with um, with uh, a continuation of um, a continuation of the um, of the program with the Shlomo Kabach music uh, we'll tell you more. I have a guest coming up at 8.15, Judy Gruen. She wrote a wonderful book called The Skeptic and the Rabbi. We'll talk to her a little bit later on, and uh, we'll find out about her journey. Uh, and right now we're going to go to Shlomo Kabach. We're going to keep on playing the music all morning long, right here on JM Sunday on the Nachum Siegel Network. Mm-hmm. 
7.29 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time here on uh, JM Sunday. Matis Wine Guest with you. want to give a shout-out to ZK this morning. <laughs> Thank you, ZK. Uh, we have been playing Shlomo Kabach music in uh, commemoration of the uh, of the 23rd yard site of Herb Shlomo Kabach on this day. Uh, 23 years ago, the 16th of Cheshvan, he passed away and left us with a legacy of thousands upon thousands of uh, of tunes of Gunim, the songs that he wrote, and uh, certainly a um, a great legacy. But we wish he were here with us. Of course, that would be that would be the best. Uh, we're going to get Robert Goldwasser in a second. Uh, we should have uh, Connor Julian with news from Israel at eight o'clock, and uh, coming up at around eight fifteen, um, Judy Gruen will be my guest. She, um, whoops, she. Uh, is the author of The Skeptic and the Rabbi, Falling in Love with Faith. Great book, and uh, we'll be talking to her about it coming up at around 8.15 this morning. Uh, right now, it is time for Rabbi David Goldwasser, Rabbi Goldwasser's words, and Esther Bas, Rabbi Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Morning. We're going to be beginning today a new series on Simcha. We find a very interesting bracha that Yaakov Avinu gave to his son Yehuda. He stated, Their eyes will be reddened from the abundance of wine, and their teeth will be white from the abundance of milk. The Talmud Ksubus explains that one who smiles to his friend, his eyes reflect kindness, he shows his teeth by smiling, and that's better than one who gives his friend milk to drink. Rav Shlem of Olba, in his Sefer Ali Shur, cites the Talmud in Makkos, it explains the Pasuk in Devarim that Moshe designated three cities beyond the Ardain. It was towards the rising of the sun. Hashem said to Moshe, Cause the sun to shine for the unintentional sinners while they are in exile. Others interpret it that Hashem told Moshe, You have caused the sun to shine for the unintentional sinners by designating these three cities of refuge. Ravolba explains that causing the sun to shine 
means to give them sustenance to the extent that the compassion and the care is then far-reaching. For example, when a person had to find sanctuary in one of these cities of refuge, his Rebbe was exiled together with him so that the sun would shine for the unintentional slayer. The Rambam in Hilchus Rotseach says that selecting these three cities was a unique mitzvah. It's difficult to understand, however, there wasn't a more important last mitzvah that Moshe could fulfill before he passed on than causing the sun to shine for these unfortunate individuals. In truth, Ravolba says that causing the sun to shine for another person, Ha'aras Panim, it's a basic fundamental of all the mitzvahs. It defines the essence of men's relationship to his fellow men. Right from the outset, the Torah tells us that Moshe's concern and distress when he saw his brethren suffering in Mitzrayim was paramount to him. And likewise, at the end of his life, Moshe is attentive to the well-being of others and wants to ensure that the sun shines for them as well. The great Tzaddik, Rebbe Nachman Mendel of Remedev, once said, Every Jew who tells me about his tsaras leaves an indelible mark upon my heart. When I stand to Davin Shmon Esra, I open my heart to Hashem. I daven that Hashem will read every single tzara that's recorded upon my heart. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day.
8 o'clock in the morning here on JM Sunday Eastern Standard Time. We changed the clock last night. So, of course, it's 8 o'clock on the East Coast. It's whatever time it is, wherever you're listening. It's the top of the hour here. Let's put it that way on uh, on this part of the um, on this part of the United States uh, continent. Uh, we're going to get uh, to Hannah Julian with the news from Israel momentarily. We have been playing all Shlomo Kalbach music this morning, commemorating the uh, 23rd yard site of Rup Shlomo and uh, playing his music all day long on the network. It started last night with Avrami with uh, Saturday Night Seagull. It will continue today with um, great music on the network. Uh, there'll be a uh, an encore at 1 o'clock of Saturday Night Seagull with Avrami. And then uh, again, all throughout the day, exciting news today at seven o'clock. Court report with Elliot Weiselberg returns to the network, featuring an in-depth look at the latest Yeshiva League sports news and information. I wonder how he's going to tie in Rip Shlomo with that. That should be interesting. The uh, twenty-four plus hours of uh, the timeless music of Rip Shlomo Kabach. Uh, continues until tomorrow morning, so it's 24-plus hours. 
And we thank all of you for joining us. We've been trying to play as many uh, Shlomo Kabach tunes as we can, selections as we can. Coming up at around 8.15, The Skeptic and the Rabbi is the name of the book. The author, Judy Gruen, will join us this morning to talk about her amazing trip. She'll talk about that. And, uh, you know, somebody on the app, appreciate the comments on the app. Somebody on the app uh, asked... uh, about Rav Shlomo Kabach and why he was such an important figure. Uh, Far better people than I can can explain that. But uh, one thing I will say, uh, Jewish music is what we do here on the network. I mean, that's the primary. And uh, his influence on Jewish music was profound. Every wedding, every Simcha event, there was a Shlomo Kabach tune. The music he gave has inspired so many people around the world for so many decades uh, even since his passing, 23 years ago, uh, there is just a, an amazing, and of course, while he was alive, the places he went. So he was a very important and is a very important figure in our Jewish history, in our, our modern Jewish history. And uh, the uh, the music, uh, which is such a powerful concept uh, within Judaism, is something that he gave to us. And uh, he is uh, sorely missed. Uh, so... We um, we uh, are you know, we we play this in commemoration because of the importance of uh, of Rabbi Shlomo Kabach. Uh, we're going to uh, attempt to connect to Chana uh, Julian, and at this time, it, it's time for our news from Israel. Chana Julian, Middle East news analyst and senior correspondent at JewishPress.com, joins us every Sunday morning to bring us up to date on the latest happenings in the state of Israel. Good morning, Hannah Julian. Good morning, Matis. Prime Minister Netanyahu was interviewed today at Britain's Chatham House. It's the Royal Institute of International Affairs, a little bit like the Herzliya's IDC. Uh, He told the gathering there that there's a unique danger in having a militant Islamic regime acquire nuclear weapons. There's a great danger, he said, from rogue regimes having nuclear weapons, but by far the greatest danger to the peace of the world is when a rogue regime makes a nuclear weapon. As for whether Israel has a responsibility for making sure the Palestinians have their own state, as the Balfour Declaration says, Netanyahu said, Peace is better than war, and non-war is better than war, but a warm peace is better than cold peace. Is it achievable? Well, yes, but you need two to tango. Netanyahu and his wife Sarah have been in Britain for the past week to mark the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. That's the document that recognized the need for a national home for the Jewish people in their ancestral homeland. Lebanon's Prime Minister Saad Hariri fled to Saudi Arabia this weekend, and he announced his resignation from Saudi Arabia. He appeared on that country's official Al-Arabiya TV network to make the announcement. Hariri said his life was in danger His father was also a prime minister in Lebanon, and he was assassinated. There are reports that Hariri also survived an alleged assassination attempt one day before he he fled to Riyadh 
to announce the resignation. He blamed Tehran, saying the Iranian presence in the region is causing destruction and chaos. Prime Minister Minister Netanyahu had a similar warning for the international community in response to that news. On Saturday night, Netanyahu warned the international community in a statement that Hariri's statement was a wake-up call to take action against Iranian aggression. He said Iran is trying to turn Syria into a second Lebanon. He warned the entire region is in danger, and he called on the global community to unite to confront the Iranian threat. Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman has also come out with a similar statement. Lieberman saying Lebanon today equals Hezbollah, and Hezbollah equals Iran, and therefore Lebanon now equals Iran. Also in the region, there's been a purge in Saudi Arabia this weekend as well. Eleven princes, several sitting ministers, four as a matter of fact, and dozens of former government ministers arrested on Saturday within hours after an anti-corruption committee was established by royal decree. That committee, headed by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman bin Saud, the heads of the Saudi National Guard and the Saudi Navy, also replaced. And there are reports by the AFP that security forces grounded private jets in the Red Sea city of Jeddah, this in order to prevent high-profile people from escaping. Local sources also report that Saudi billionaire Prince Al-Walid bin Talal is among those who were arrested. He's one of the wealthiest men in the entire world. No confirmation so far of the report, but I did see one report from a Gulf publication, so it looks like that one may be true. In other words, uh, in other news, the Israeli army is preparing to destroy a new terrorist tunnel just discovered near Khan Yunus. Hamas and Islamic Jihad rejected an offer by the IDF to trade information on living hostages held by Hamas and the bodies of two fallen soldiers for the bodies of terrorists who died in a collapsed terror tunnel last week in Israel. The terror group said that their members are dead. They also said they're motivated simply to build more tunnels. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley said this weekend that as long as she's ambassador, the U.S. will protect Israel at the United Nations. She called the U.N. a hostile place for Israel. She was speaking Saturday night at the Israeli-American Council National Conference in Washington. She also said the Iran nuclear deal is very, very flawed And she said the deal is designed to be too big to fail. So she said this is a chance to improve it rather than to abandon it. A quick look now at the weather. Partly cloudy skies today, a bit warmer. Really nice outside, highs in the 70s. Partly cloudy again tonight, a bit cool, lows in the 50s. A bit of light rain in the coastal plain. On Monday, partly cloudy skies with a slight drop in temperatures and a chance of light rain in the morning. Have a great week, everyone. Shavua Tov. I'm Hannah Julian for Jam Sunday. Thank you, Hannah Julian. It is, uh, as always, a pleasure to uh, have you join us here on JM Sunday. Much appreciated. And uh, we will see you next week right here on uh, on JM Sunday. Mata Swinegast with you. It is uh, nine minutes after the uh, top of the hour here on uh, on a Sunday morning. We're going to be getting to our guest uh, in a few minutes. Uh, Judy Gruen is the author of the book The Skeptic and the Rabbi. It's a great book. 
and uh, we'll be talking about her journey uh, to Orthodox Judaism uh, coming up in about um, five minutes from now. We're going to go back to the music we are playing, all Shlomo Kabach music this morning here on the network on JM Sunday. It is the 24-plus hours of uh, Shlomo Kabach music in uh, honor and commemoration in his memory. It's his 23rd yard site today, the 16th of Cheshvan. And uh, he has left us a tremendous legacy, which 23 years later is still as strong as ever. Uh, of course, like I said before, we'd rather he were here, but uh, you know, at the very, very, very least, uh, we have his music, and um, it continues to inspire. So uh, we'll continue now with uh, Elecha, and then uh, we'll be getting to our guest in just a few minutes right here on JM Sunday. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. 
Altira by Shlomo Kabach here on JM Sunday. Uh, we're going to bring that down for now. Maybe we'll get back to it uh, a little bit later with more Shlomo Kabach music as we've been playing his music today because it is uh, Shlomo Kabach's yard site today, 23 years ago, 16th of Cheshvan. So on the network, it is 24 plus hours of Kabach. started last night with Avrami and will continue tomorrow morning with uh, JM in the AM. It's uh, 8.16 in the morning Eastern Standard Time here in the East Coast of the United States and uh, wherever you are around the world. It is uh, 16 minutes after the hour. And uh, my guest is uh, in a place where it's uh, considerably earlier than that, and I appreciate her joining us. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the airwaves Judy Gruen, a... uh, a prolific writer and author of a new book called The Skeptic and the Rabbi, Falling in Love with Faith, Judy Gruen. Welcome to JM Sunday. Thank you very much. I appreciate you joining us. I know it's early and you said you're drinking your coffee. So uh, we'll energize each other and uh, and hopefully energize the audience into getting your book. Uh, I spent... Uh, I spent a, a nice chunk of time reading through the whole book, and uh, I have to say I have so many post-it notes and so many little uh, uh, notes here that uh, we need a few hours to get through it. But I don't want to tell everyone about the book. I want to get right into your telling us uh, to start off a little bit about your background, which I don't want to say is typical of American Jewry, but very common of American Jewry. Um, and tell us about your family background and the um, the circle of family, the the different elements of it that uh, you grew into or grew up with that then helped you towards your journey. 
Okay. Well, um, I think that my background is a little bit typical, certainly for my uh, age. I was born in 1960, and I had two sets of grandparents who were very, very opposite of one another. One set was born in Europe uh, into Orthodox homes and lived um, religiously conservative Jewish lives here in the United States. My other set of grandparents were completely atheist, and I was very involved with both sets of grandparents. I loved them very much. They were so special to me, but they formed really the backdrop of my decision whether to follow the path of my secular grandparents, who in some ways were seemed broader to me, intellectually broader. They certainly seemed to have more fun uh, versus my religious grandparents who came from a difficult life in Europe and who had, unfortunately, that schwer sein attitude that was so common for their generation. And while it was understandable, because for them it had been very difficult to live as a Jew, um, they didn't, they weren't able to convey the joy, and, and as I say in the book, I wanted more joy de vivre rather than oi de vivre. <laughs> and that really sets up the, the tension for when, uh, in my early 20s, I met the man who would become my husband, and he was on his way to living a, a Torah-observant life. And I thought, oh, it's too bad, he has so much going for him, and now this. Right. Uh, we'll we'll talk about your your husband uh, Jeff. I believe is his name. Am I correct? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk about him. But growing up, uh, you said you you were looking at things and thinking about things in your twenties. But as you were growing up uh, in your uh, earlier years, in your teens, uh, bat mitzvah time, for instance, uh, what happened then, or if anything? to um, make you start to think about your religious side or your your Jewish side uh, as opposed to the more secular side? Well, um, I guess it's not a problem to give this away, but um, we had a family tragedy when I was nine, and my older brother died in a car accident, and that was, of course, extremely, extremely traumatic for the entire family. And I had no idea that Judaism believed that the soul, the neshama, lives on forever. I didn't know that. When I found that out later, I knew it was a Christian idea. How about that? I knew that the Christians believed that, but how did I not know that Jews believed it? I went to Hebrew school all these years, then I went to confirmation, I was involved in USY, I, I had a very uh, a lot of Jewish involvement and engagement, but they had dropped a lot of core ideas from the curriculum. When I found that out, I felt so cheated, because while it wouldn't have brought my brother back, it really would have been a bomb during you know such such a traumatic time. And so I had to start wondering what else did they not teach us. Right, uh, and that, and you talk about that in different parts of uh, of the book in terms of what uh, you learned 
what you had learned versus what you hadn't learned. It was funny, you sometimes mentioned things where people on the outside, whether they're Jewish or not, sometimes know more than we do in uh, than what we learn. You know, we make certain assumptions based on what we learn, and, and if we're told that's it, then that's it. And you find out from other people, like, no, <laughs> you have all this, this rich heritage, and sometimes you even have... You have uh, you mentioned some anecdotes of non-Jewish people who have crossed uh, paths with you and have told you things that are like, you know, I respect your religion because of X, Y, Z, and you're like, oh wow, <laughs> you know. No, absolutely. In fact, um, there are there is a, a Catholic woman who I befriended and a, a Christian young man who Jeff met in junior year abroad, who were both instrumental, and that's not too strong a word, in, in our pursuing our own Jewish paths, because our secular Jewish friends and relatives would never have encouraged it, because it seemed so old-fashioned. But um, Jeff's uh, pal from college, Charlie, told him that he absolutely had to go to Israel and visit it. Right. Right, it yeah. hadn't even been on his radar screen, and um, ironically, um, Carol, the Catholic friend of mine, we were both editors at a Jewish weekly newspaper <laughs> here in Los Angeles. She was the senior editor, and I was beginning to wonder why I heard disparaging comments about orthodoxy from other Jewish staff members, and she and I would take walks during lunch because I was dating Jeff and really in kind of a crisis mode of decision-making. And she told me how much she valued and respected Judaism. And she was also a feminist. Mm. And I considered myself a feminist. That was very important to me. And uh, it it is very ironic but not surprising that it was non-Jews who were more encouraging of our past than Jews. Right, exactly. Judy Gruen is my guest this morning. The book is called The Skeptic and the Rabbi. Uh, going to the book itself and the style, uh, it's a wonderful style of writing that you have. You take us on your journey with you. It's like we are there. It's not just an autobiography where there's just a lot of facts and pieces of information. You're weave, you weave a story and like I said, we are there with you. You make us feel like we are experiencing experiencing what happens to you. You don't tell us everything that goes on, uh, you know, every step of the way. But we have this picture of a period of time uh, until uh, a little bit after you got married in 1987. Which, by the way, as I spoke to you off the phone, I'm also I also was born in 1960, and we were also married in in 87. So congratulations on your 30th <laughs> wedding anniversary. Uh, Thank you. And you you bring us those anecdotes and those stories uh, during that period of time, and I think that style uh, really helps the reader uh, to stay interested and. Um, and and to to get the what you're trying to do is to lead us on this journey. Sometimes the what you tell us is is very raw, like you talked about your brother passing away. Uh, and sometimes it's it's very funny, um, but it's it's really in a style that I think is is great. And you're right. You said that your background of having two different sets of grandparents uh, really shaped you in a certain way. But at the same time, perhaps that also made you question things because of that background? If you had maybe two sets of orthodox uh, grandparents and for whatever reason you were not as involved, you may not have questioned anything. It, it 
it may not have um, put that through. Am I getting that right from the way you wrote your story? I, I think so, and I think that that is one of the benefits of having had this rather confusing background is because I had the opportunity to look for myself and delve deeper. Unfortunately, now we see, and it's you know in the news again with a new documentary, that too often uh, people who are born into overly restrictive, I'll use that word, and I, I mean no offense to anybody, uh, communities feel shackled and they leave. They don't know that there are different flavors that are all kosher, so to speak, in, in terms of being, you know, Torah observant, but perhaps with a little more broadness. Right. That was very, very important to me. And that leads into my next question, and thank you. The stories you tell us and the decisions you make along the way, uh, I, I enjoyed very much the way you described them, because when you come up with a... Uh, a particular mitzvah that you wanted to take on when it comes to uh, your uh, dating Jeff and discussing uh, very um, serious topics about religion, uh, you don't simply say, okay, I'll do this or I'm not going to do that. You really delved into the reasons why for the mitzvahs. Uh, you came to grips on what you wanted to do, what you felt comfortable with. You really grew into it as opposed to simply saying, okay, I like you, so I'm going to do this, and then it becomes, uh, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Do I, do I marry you and stay with you because I'm just going to, you know, because I love you, obviously, uh, and therefore I'm going to just do everything that you want or vice versa. But no, you really went through a process, and I think the readers would get a great understanding of why that's so important from your story. Well, uh, anyone who knows me knows I'm not a yes person. <laughs> I, 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 want, I wanted truth, and I think that one disadvantage that uh, you and I have from uh, being born in, in the era that we were born is that it was very it was becoming very feelings based. Mm -hmm. It was if it feels good, do it. Right. That's a really lethal idea because it elevates our egos over other things. And obviously, you know, the, the Torah teaches us, you know, uh, you shall do and, and then you shall hear. In other words, you have to sometimes really dive in before you can appreciate the meaning. And some things really took a long time. Some things are still hard. But I got to the point where I realized this isn't about me. This is about something so much bigger and richer and deeper and more profound than just me. Right, exactly. And I, I wanted to bring that honesty to my story, otherwise there was no value in my telling it. Right, 100%. It's interesting you say about the, the feelings-based uh, society that we grew up in um, in the earlier years, uh, yet your journey seems to be much more of a spiritual journey as opposed to uh, a, uh, what do I mean? There, was, there weren't too many life-altering events. I know you mentioned, of course, about your brother, which impacted the whole family, but there weren't too many life-altering events which seemed to propel you on your journey. Uh, in the sen At least that's what I got from the book. In the sense that it's not like, God forbid, you know, you were in a life-threatening situation and you came out of it and you said, okay, I'm going to become, you know, religious because I went through this. And 
if I'm correct about that, isn't spirituality, though, part of feeling? So that time frame actually helps a little bit uh, because it's uh-huh. not, you know, I hear you know what, what I'm you're saying? saying. I hear what you're right. saying. Yes, of course, feelings count. It's not just cerebral. Right. Absolutely not. Um, one thing that, that really started to um, encourage me was when, and, and I wrote about this in the book, when I started to keep Chavez in the Venice, California community where Jeff had become involved, and I was staying overnight for the first time with a family, and I was looking at this family, a young couple with uh, three young children at the time, and I saw something that we were losing in the outside culture, which was this wholesomeness, and I wanted what they had. Mm -hmm. I wanted that kind of beautiful marriage, and with children who were growing up with as much innocence as was possible, um, again, not being overly uh, sheltered, but sheltered in what I would consider a very healthy way. I saw what, what looked to me to be a healthy, healthy and happy lifestyle. Obviously, every life has challenges, difficulties, etc. But I really be- also began to see that the Torah was a real guide for whatever you were going through. Right. And I wanted in. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and you also saw that happy life, of course, within the religious framework, so they weren't mutually exclusive. Uh, but to be fair also, in, in writing about your family, certainly you had, as we can tell, a very loving family. You had different uh, grandparents, like you said, with religious backgrounds and influenced everyone, of course. But uh, overall, you're, you're, you know, you portray a very loving, warm, connected family that did things together, went on trips together. You had uh, tremendous experiences with uh, all of them. Uh, and, uh, and it seems like you just said, once you had that religious component, and I use that not in terms of like religious, like this mitzvah, that mitzvah, but the religiosity component, uh, you saw how it really brings a family even closer, uh, whereas stereotypically you might have thought beforehand that that wasn't the case. Right. Well, our family was on the typical trajectory toward full assimilation, and that I saw growing up, and that concerned me even even as a, as a young teenager. In other words, my, my mother would always light Shabbos candles, and we would have a nice Shabbos dinner. But after that, uh, sometimes we might drive to shul, but other times we would just go in the den and watch TV. And I saw, it was just so clear that there was so little to hold on to, really, that you had to go in deeper to, to get that bedrock framework otherwise it would all be gone and in point of fact now you know so many years later and i'm not saying this in any way god forbid to be bragging in any way but uh, so many of my friends who are also balay chuva have this in their own families they may be the only ones who are shomer shabbos um, among their siblings cousins it's all flipping away so fast, it's very frightening. Right, absolutely. And it's very important that you said that because nowadays in the, quote, Baal Tshuva movement, uh, there, there are many different ways of approaching uh, the, the Baal Tshuva, uh, the potential Baal Tshuva. And uh, what happened 
in your story, it still happens today that I think one of the biggest fears that families have when they see one of their uh, family members becoming more religious is they're afraid that they are going to be alienated by that uh, by that family member, uh, primarily because a base that they always had, whatever it was, whether, like you said, you light the candles and then you are watching television, but whatever that family component was, was there. And now they're going in a direction that could potentially uh, break that. And I think, and you write about this, and and tell us your your feeling, because I think it's very important that Bali Chuva and people who bring people into uh, into Judaism uh, realize that's a very important component. Uh, you want to do mitzvahs, and you want to say at some point in time, I'm going to observe Shabbos in this way, in Kashan this way, but you have to do it in a way of understanding with the rest of the family. It's a, such an important topic. Um, I wrote about this many, many, many years ago, and um, I still remember uh, interviewing a psychologist who had become religious, well into her adult years. And uh, she was saying how important it is for the Balchuva to understand and, and never forget that it was their parents, something about their parents, something about their background made it possible for them to make this choice. And that Balchuva have to be careful not to start fetching about how expensive kosher meat is, right. even though it is, or... <laughs> Forget about day school education, you know, just, <laughs> you know, it, there are sacrifices that we make that are well worth it. So everybody has a responsibility to be respectful and to do what they can to not make certainly parents feel alienated. Obviously, there, there are many times um, when either parents might kind of put a stumbling block in front kind of as a test. Right. And it can be very tricky. But one thing that in our community in, in Venice, which was he- headed at the time by Rabbi Daniel Lepp, and he is the rabbi of the title, the, the skeptic and the rabbi, yes. he worked very hard at answering people's uh, questions about how to keep peace in the family. And he urged to really bend over backwards to attend family functions and not take a holier-than-thou approach. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I can't. I was looking for it right now, but I know it's on one of the post-its uh, where he made some comment, uh, I guess, in, just like you said, in response to a question about dealing with, um, dealing with a family question, and he had a great quote. I don't remember what it is, but I know it's in the book, so people are going to have to read it. <laughs> we'll let them yes, get that. Yes, they will. They will have to find it. Absolutely. That's why I'm not even. I'm not even going to ask you for it, which I'm sure you know right away. Uh, but you also were fortunate uh, in having people around you that you were able to go to who really were great in this. So when you had a question to ask, you were able to find people. Uh, it doesn't happen that often, but I think it would be you'd agree that it's easy to find such people. You just have to be able to search and ask the right questions and get to the right person. Uh, but that shouldn't deter someone who doesn't have an answer to a question or a dilemma to reach out and find a person like Rabbi Lapp. Right. It's very easy 
to say something is usher, that, you know, mm-hmm. no, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's, it, takes, it takes greatness to be able to, within halacha, find the permissible and to find uh, compromises, again, within halacha. Right. They're there. And it, I'm just saying it's everybody's responsibility to work to keep, keep the peace and, and, and I think that, again, Balei Chiva have to reassure their, their families that we still love them and respect them. Exactly. That's the important thing also, that that respect is there. Uh, and uh, uh, it is... Uh, it is certainly portrayed in your in your book, The Skeptic and the Rabbi is the name of the book. Do, I, I know it's early, but do we have a few more minutes? Because uh, I have a bunch of other I'm questions. I'm already up. Great. I've already got my coffee. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, so I, I, you know, like, like I said, there's so many different parts. Let's go back to the book format itself. You're writing basically on what happened uh, roughly 30 years ago and, and prior. Uh, and, uh, and then you jump uh, at the very end towards when one of your children got married. Uh, two, twofold, why did you wait until now to write this book? Uh, and, um, and why only uh, limit it to that period of time? Okay. Um, well, I, I've been a writer for my whole career, and this is my fifth book. Mm-hmm. I've written three humor books that were not uh, particularly Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier in my career, I specifically was not trying to be a Jewish writer writing for a Jewish audience. I I felt that that would be too narrow, but I've grown in my views there, too, and I realized over the years, not only do, should writers write what they know, but I felt that I was being enriched so much through from my Jewish life, through my immersive Jewish life, that it would be wrong for me not to share that. And because I I consider myself still somewhat modern, I felt I still had the ability to write about Yiddishkeit in a way that could be read and heard uh, by non-Orthodox readers. And that was my primary target readership for this book, not to try and persuade or convert, but to explain one woman's story, one woman's journey. Why did I wait till now? Part of it was twofold. Uh, One is because I felt that I really had a lot of perspective. I mean, as you say, a lot of years have gone by, but it has given me so much perspective and it helped me to really frame everything that happened in a way that made sense and and would be satisfying. And a memoir is not an autobiography. An autobiography is when you just kind of shove in everything that happened to you. I'm not that interesting a person. In a memoir, you need to select certain things that are highlighting an era in your life or, uh, or something about your life. And so everything that I chose was uh, specifically geared for showing the the, the journey. Right. And uh, oh, wait, wait. Yes. I'm sorry. One more thing. Of course. So important. One thing that really stimulated me to do it because I had the idea for many years was when I started seeing all these um, anti-orthodox memoirs that have been coming out. Yes. 
in, in recent years, and I was very upset by them, not because I doubted anybody's story, not because I felt they didn't have the right to tell their story, but because those were the only visions of orthodoxy that were getting out to the general public, and that just ate me up. Right. And I thought, this cannot be, that is, and I need to tell my story. Yeah, that is so important, because unfortunately, uh, it, it, it's very few and far between to find an author such as yourself uh, who can write well and tell the story. We all might know it, and everyone knows it, but... Uh, somehow, the sensationalism of a uh, of a problematic uh, society is more enticing than a uh, a book about hey how you know great everything is and, and it is so important that you uh, that you looked at it that way and and also I, I mean we know your journey didn't end when uh, you got married and and it continued you know and and developed over the years and decades I'm sure uh, so. But, but by well, you know, I just I, I need to interject something very important because sure. while while my story is a positive story, it's not a sugar-coated story. I I also share um, some examples of where things don't work out so well right. for people who became Bali Chuba. So the honesty in my story is, I think, one of its strengths, and I and it's a I hope for that reason it's a it's a believable and engaging story but it, it is not it's not a uh it's not a hallmark greeting card right exactly that's why i mentioned in, in the very beginning that it, it is a, a a raw story in certain parts you tell it like it is you tell the story and that's part of the story um people mm-hmm. can see through a sugar-coated story to say how everything is great and the, what the rose-colored glasses you know it's just uh, that that's not as like you said believable and it, and it won't and it doesn't capture people's imagination to understand what you went through and and what you went through for you know quite a while as you developed your uh, your religious beliefs, etc. Uh, the name of the book is The Skeptic and the Rabbi. Judy Gruen is the author. Uh, I want to thank, as I always do, uh, Stuart Schnee for getting us together. He's a great publicist in Israel, and I appreciate uh, that he. Um, he put us together on this uh, uh, for this interview. Uh, a couple of other uh, of other things. Y- you wrote this now. Uh, you have a family, uh, children who are, who are married. You talk about that, and, and that's where you are right now. Uh, obviously, you would not be upset at all uh, if your children read the book, uh, or grandchildren, or you know anyone else that you know. Uh, my question is, how much of this story before you wrote it did you impart to your children as they were growing up? Oh, um, as they were growing up. Hmm. It's funny. Even though I've been a writer for over 30 years and I've written personal essays that have been published in many publications, major newspapers, and mm-hmm. a lot on com. Right. I actually wasn't the kind of mom who sat around and told the kids stories about things that happened growing up. So they all read the book, the manuscript, and I I asked everybody for their input, advice. Um, I often would ask my sons in particular for, you know, am I getting this right? Am I quoting this correctly? Is there a better way to explain this? Because they're all uh, very, very uh, well-schooled. 
I didn't. A lot of things were new to them when they read the manuscript as as young adults. Okay, but uh, it's funny. I'm thinking of a particular thing just now popped in my head. I'm not going to give it away on the air because I want people to uh, read it. And when they get to it, they'll, they'll hear it. You mentioned one about one of your children. Uh, when 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 I, I, I forgive me if I got it wrong. Your mother came over uh, for a shop's visit, and, and the comment he mm-hmm. made, you know, afterwards uh, is is very telling. Uh, and, and again, I want people to to read it in uh, you know in the book when they get to it because it's it's gr- it's great and it's you, a classic it, it, moment. Right, exactly. Uh, but uh, you know, given that, what's your feeling on um, sharing these type of things with family? You know, in general, for for a Bali Chuva, should they uh, tell as much as possible? Um, should they just uh, do it, obviously do it when the time is right. Um, what do you feel? Should they hide things? Um, uh, what, what's your feeling I, on I, it? I don't know what you mean by share everything. I mean, there's, you know, there are certain things that, that I that I did not write about in, in the book um, that were just not necessary. Right. Um, but in terms of, you know, raising kids as a FFB kids, if you're a Balchuva, I don't know. I think you have a big advantage because you've been on the other side. And so when your kids get to the age where they're asking questions and maybe feeling a little rebellious, you hopefully won't freak out and um, you can listen and, um, and they'll know that you can really hear them and offer your perspective of, why staying on our path is the best recipe for, you know, fulfillment and happiness and obviously doing what Hashem wants us to do, which leads to, I believe, more fulfillment and ultimate happiness. And Does that answer the question? Yeah, I believe it absolutely does. <laughs> Maybe in a roundabout way. No, it, it does, because I think the, the point that you made is that uh, people shouldn't be afraid to share certain things and to share their story at the appropriate time and appropriate parts of it to to let their the family know and let children grandchildren know where they came from and how they got to where they are uh and uh, not to assume that uh you know, it was easy and it was just oh it happened like you know they may see other people like that and i think you're right it gives a greater appreciation for our children and grandchildren to um to appreciate other people in that circumstance even today 30 years later 40 years later it hasn't changed we still have plenty of people in the exact same situation that you were in uh, who are trying to find themselves and they need people like you who understand what they went what they're going through to help them along the way and that's extremely important and i think that's something that comes out of the book also uh very uh, in a very major way that uh, this is a lifestyle that is wonderful uh, but sometimes it takes a lot of work to get there and a lot of thinking, and you should go through that process because that keeps it going for a long time, forever. Oh, absolutely. And I and I, I do hope that young people, even though I'm old enough to be their mother, will uh, will read the book because I think that the, the yearning for identity and stability is very intense right now. I think that's why we have all this identity politics going on. Right. I, I think that if people had another sense of identity that was based in the family or faith, uh, that they wouldn't be yelling and screaming about 
privilege this and that. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Sure, absolutely. Um, Judy Gruen, the author of The Skeptic and the Rabbi, a great book. It's available on Amazon, available wherever. You know, great uh, Barnes books. and Noble so, also. Barnes and Noble, uh, I'm sure in, in various Jewish bookstores around the world. So I would suggest, now, you know, if you go on Amazon, depending on where you are, you can actually get a copy today, probably with Barnes and Noble uh, also. They they'll ship it. And the, Barnes and Noble it. happened to to make a major purchase of the book. Oh, nice! Which is why I'm I'm thrilled wherever anybody buys it. But I want to uh, thank Barnes and Noble for their vote of confidence in the skeptic and the rabbi by having people also buy from them as well. But right. wherever you buy it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I know you're going to be on with uh, Alice and Joseph uh, later on this week. She's also on our network, and uh, I, I'm sure she'll probably pick up on the points that you made, but also, uh, as we all know uh, from Allison's, uh, her own trip and her own shows and what she does, uh, sh- the fact that you're orthodox is... Uh, I won't say secondary, but you're an author who happens to be orthodox, and I'm sure she's going to focus on that uh, a lot in particular also. Uh, and, and, of course, talk and she's about doing the book. such great work oh, with, yeah. uh, oh. in, in, in every which way. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to hearing that uh, interview also. Uh, Judy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It really has been a pleasure. I encourage everybody to go out and buy the book. And uh and good luck on the on your journey, on your continuation. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, and it was worth getting up this early. <laughs> Thanks again. <laughs> Have a great day. Thank you. Take Thank care. you, you too. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Judy Gruen, The Skeptic and the Rabbi. Uh, that's the name of the book. Please go out and get it. I encourage you to uh, read it. It is a fascinating book and uh, very enjoyable. We're going to play a few more. Uh, maybe we'll get to um, one or two more selections of uh, Rav Shlomo Kabach on the on his yard site today as we commemorate it with 24-plus hours of uh, Shlomo Kabach music right here on JM Sunday on the Nachum Siegel Network.
You know, friends, to tell you the truth, to tell you the truth. For me and for you, it's still Yom Kippur. It's still Yom Kippur. Till there be peace in the world. Till there be peace in the world. Peace in Yerushalayim. It's still Yom Kippur. Yisrael, betach b'ashem. Yisrael, betach b'ashem. You know, friends, sometimes it makes me sad, but sometimes it makes me happy. Israel has no friends in the world. The holy land, the holy people of Israel are all alone. But you know what we have is not. We have one friend in heaven. Classics of Shlomo Kalbach, Yisrael B'Tach B'Shem, ending off with uh, part of that here on JM Sunday on the Nachum Siegel Network as we commemorate uh, Shlomo's uh, 23rd yard site with uh, 24-plus hours of Shlomo Kalbach music continuing all day long. Court report at 7 o'clock. Back on tonight with Elliot Weiselberg here on, uh, on the network. Keep it on the network all day long. My thanks to Judy Gruen, author of The Skeptic and the Rabbi, for a great interview. I appreciate the time. I know it uh, went long, but uh, I, I think it was it was great. We could have gone on for another hour. Uh, but get the book. Order the book today. Get it. Read it. It is fantastic for anybody, anybody to read. So uh, please do that. My thanks again to her, to Judy Gruen, for joining me this morning. We are... Uh, We're just about done for today, so thanks everyone again. We'll see you next week right here on JM Sunday on the Nachum Siegel Network.